0: Well, this is our, uh, our third week in the part of John's Gospel where we encounter uh, Jesus before Pilate and Pilate before the crowd. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of the details that uh, Ben pointed out was the dramatic flow of the last part of chapter 18 uh, through this first part of chapter 19. And so there's this back-and-forth movement going on. Pilate outside uh, to face the Jewish authorities and the crowd. Then Pilate inside to speak to Jesus. Then back outside with the Jews. Then back inside with Jesus. Back and forth. Back and forth. And so we pick up this morning about halfway through that dramatic sequence. Uh, Back inside with Jesus. Uh, at the start of John chapter 19. And if you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you, uh, you're going to find that on page 905. And we'll be looking specifically at the first 16 verses of chapter 19. Uh, But before we hear that part of God's Word, uh, let's go to Him in prayer. Lord God, uh, this morning, once again, we do thank you for making yourself known to us. We thank you for your word, for revealing yourself to us in the very pages of the Bible. And we look to you now, and we ask that once again that you, by the power of your Spirit, would open our eyes that we might see Jesus. And it's in his name we pray them. So John chapter 19, uh, beginning with verse 1, hear the word of God. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, "'Hail, King of the Jews!' and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, "'See, I am bringing him out to you, "'that you may know that I find no guilt in him.' So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, "'Behold the man!' When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Pilate entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. And sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement, in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, it was about the sixth hour. Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. This is God's word. Well, as we take a look at this text, we're just going to simply follow the flow of the passage. Uh, So four scenes here, back and forth, uh, inside and outside. And we begin inside the governor's headquarters. Back inside the governor's headquarters, uh, verses 1 to 3. And here we see Jesus beaten and mocked. First, we see that Jesus is flogged. Now, if you know anything about uh, Roman history, in particular, uh, flogging, you might know already that there are three levels of flogging that they had. Uh, A severe beating... A harsher beating, and then a brutal, life-threatening beating, uh, which this third one was a preliminary to crucifixion. Now, from the the four gospels, as we read them together, we know that Jesus was beaten both before being sentenced and also after being sentenced to death. Now, something that this first beating. Uh, here in verse 1, I think that it's the same as the brutal scourging uh, that is referenced uh, specifically in Matthew and Mark uh, and assumed elsewhere. However, it seems unlikely that Pilate would have administered, at least at this point, that he would have administered so violent and life threatening a punishment to someone who has not yet been sentenced to death, not yet been sentenced to crucifixion and also Someone that he is still trying to release. And so it seems more likely that this flogging was the first level, a uh, one that was administered for lesser offenses, uh, which is also consistent with the verb that John uses here. Now, the first level uh, was, was painful still. Uh, it was a leather whip, uh, of course, had multiple thongs. Uh, the lashes would go across the victim's Uh, neck and shoulders and back and buttocks, it would cut into the skin and cause extensive bleeding. But then that third level uh, added to the process, uh, because in those thongs of leather were added uh, sharp pieces of metal or broken bones, and so it lasted longer and not only did it cut, but also grabbed and pulled the skin. So we know that Jesus suffered both types of flogging. Uh, here he is severely beaten, no doubt. We also see that Jesus is given a crown of thorns and a purple robe. Uh, purple of course being the color of royalty. Uh, the crown uh, being a sign of royalty. Now, some of us that have been around the church for some time, we might become used to just thinking of this crown of thorns. Maybe we've become a little numb to the whole idea, but I don't want you to have in mind some innocuous laurel wreath because that's not what it was. Uh, Scholars tell us that whatever plant was used from the Middle East, whatever was twisted together, that those thorns would have been very sharp and they would have been at least an inch in length. Some uh, believe that they were... Two and three inches, and even longer than that, and so these thorns would sink down into the victim's, uh, into the victim's head, and and not only painful but also again, uh, causing severe bleeding, and distorting the face. Well, the soldiers not only crown and robe Jesus after flogging him, but they also berate him. With mocking homage. And then they strike him over and over with their fists. And we read elsewhere, uh, even with a wooden staff. Now, if you remember back to last week and the week before, Pilate has already tried to release Jesus. Jesus. But but to no avail. He's been unsuccessful. And so now he hopes that this beating is going to be enough to appease the Jews. And so we now go back outside. Outside before the crowd. Shifting into verses 4 to 8. But instead, here we see that the tension escalates even more. And so Pilate, uh, continuing to seek to let Jesus go, he brings out the bloodied and beaten Jesus with this crown of thorns and this makeshift purple robe. Pilate presents him to the angry, hateful crowd, saying, verse 5, Behold the man. Now, Now what he is saying here, I mean, Pilate at this point is annoyed and frustrated. And so what the governor is basically saying is, Look at this guy. I mean come on look at this poor fellow this this harmless fool He's he's a threat to no one not you not me not the government get over it let's move on and let him go But the religious authorities will have none of it And they began to cry crucify crucify him So Pilate is just at the end of himself. And so he tells them, knowing very well that they can't do it, you take him yourselves and crucify him. And then for the third time in this larger narrative, for the third time, verse 6, Pilate declares, I find no guilt in him. He's innocent. But the Jews demand that Jesus must die. He must die according to their law because he has claimed to be the Son of God. A charge of blasphemy. Now, Pilate doesn't care about the charge. He doesn't care about their silly little religious laws. However, what they've just said, it spooks him. It haunts him it begins to undo him. Uh, Verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. That's right, he was even more afraid. You see, Pilate was already afraid. I mean, for one, he was a superstitious pagan, as were many Romans in the day. He he lived in fear of, of somehow angering the gods. Further, as we learn in Matthew's gospel, Pilate's wife has had a bad dream about Jesus, and she has warned Pilate, have nothing to do with this innocent man. And so he's spooked. And once more, Pilate takes Jesus aside for questioning. And so we move back inside now uh, to the governor's headquarters, uh, back inside, verses 9 through 11, and here we see who's really in control. And so it begins with an apprehensive Pilate asking Jesus, where are you from? Who, who are you? And Jesus doesn't say anything, doesn't answer And so Pilate's fear quickly turns into exasperation. Hey, hey, I'm in control here. Who who do you think you are not talking to me? Don't you know who I am, what, what power I have? I have the power to crucify you. And then the bloodied, beaten Jesus looks Pilate in the eye and speaks as the one who is really in control. Verse 11. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus instructs Pilate. He explains to Pilate that God rules over all and that Pilate's authority, it's merely been entrusted to him by God. So now he's back back to being spooked, continues to seek to release Jesus. So finally we move back outside, outside once again before the crowd, verses 12 to 16. And here we see the drama quickly head to its inevitable conclusion. I mean, there's no way that these religious authorities, no way they are going to let Pilate release Jesus. Verse 12. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so we can hear it loud and clear. This is their second charge against Jesus. That he stands against Rome because he has claimed to be a king. A charge treason. And we can also hear their threat against Pilate. Hey Pilate, you you don't want to be seen as a traitor too, do you? Uh, You wouldn't want word to get back to Rome now, would you? What would Caesar say? What would he do? Pilate can hear it now. You mean you had a man in front of you on a charge of making himself a rebel king and you let him go? What sort of governor are you? This is a place of honor. You are supposed to be loyal to Rome. I will have your life for this. And so now even more afraid, confused, and also fed up Tired of, irritated by these relentless, threatening, uncivilized religious fanatics, Pilate finally decides to officially sentence Jesus, to offer an official judgment on behalf of Rome, and also express one last time his contempt for the Jews. So, picking up verse 13. He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. And then Pilate derides the Jews. Verse 14, behold your king. And they cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified. And so Jesus has now been sentenced to die on a cross. Sentenced to die on a cross. But friends, this is the very purpose for which he came. So back in John 12... Back in John 12, Jesus entered Jerusalem. You remember the triumphal entry. It's really just a few days ago in the story. And Jesus declared, The hour has come. That is the time for him to die. The hour has come, and for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And last week, John 18, Jesus says to Pilate, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. You see, Jesus came to die, and his death reveals the truth. The truth of our damning sin, and the truth of God's redeeming love. I mean, we see here, in this passage, the severity of our sin. The severity of our sin is on clear display before us. We see it in the soldiers, in Pilate, the religious authorities, the crowd. We see what, in the words of one scholar, turns out to be an ugly catalog of human hatred, brutality, cruelty, and violence we see our own sinful hearts in each of them. And we see that the horror and ugliness of sin is far more insidious than we could ever begin to imagine. And you know it looks the same today as it did back then. And as it did all the way back in the garden. Genesis 3, the Fall humanity, whether it be our grasping to be like God, in control of our lives, a form of blasphemy, or our rebelling against His rightful rule over us, a form of treason. I mean, they're the same two perversions at the heart of sin that that have always been At the root of every sin and first seen in Adam and Eve. Well, here in John 19, though innocent, both the charge of blasphemy and the charge of treason are leveled against Jesus. They're leveled against Jesus, and though not guilty, Jesus takes the punishment for these charges. He takes the punishment for these charges so that we, who are guilty, don't have to. And thus the amazing, redeeming love of God is revealed. A self-giving love that suffers in order to save. In seeing this, seeing Jesus... Seeing in Him what our God is really like, oh, it should fill us with awe, with relief, with gratitude, with joy. Okay, think about it this way for a moment. Think about a glass of water. I often have one up here. All right, now we'll illustrate well. Are you a a half-empty or half-full kind of person? Maybe it depends on the day. But, but let, me, let me give you a, a different uh, perspective on this. It's, uh, it's, it's an illustration uh, that takes a different angle and one that has been quite helpful to me over the past several years. Uh, it comes from Pastor Milton Vincent, uh, who puts it this way. Viewing life's blessings as water in a drinking cup, I know that I could discontentedly focus on the half of the cup that seems empty. Or I could gratefully focus on the half that is full. Certainly the latter approach is the better of the two. Yet the gospel cultivates within me an even richer gratitude than this. You see, the gospel reminds me first that what I actually deserve from God is a full cup. One churning with the torments of his wrath. This is the cup that would be mine to drink if I were given what I deserve each day. With this understanding in mind, I see that to be handed a completely empty cup from God would be cause enough for infinite gratitude. And if there were merely the tiniest drop of blessing contained in that otherwise empty cup, I should be blown away by the unbelievable kindness of God toward me. But that God, in fact, has given me a cup that is full of and overflowing with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And this, without the slightest admixture of wrath, leaves me truly dumbfounded with inexpressible Because you see, it's the truth. It's the truth about our damning sin. It's the truth about God's amazing love. And in seeing that, in really seeing Jesus, we truly see the love of God. Because ultimately, love is a person love of God, he's a person. And he is standing right in front of Pilate. A Pilate doesn't see him. John doesn't want it to be like that for you. John doesn't want you to miss seeing Jesus for who he really is. And so John makes clear verse 14, that when all of this was happening, when all of this was unfolding, that it was the day of preparation. The day when the Passover lambs were sacrificed in Jerusalem. Because in Jesus we see the true Passover lamb. And so as Pilate declares, Behold your king, We can also hear the resounding echo of John's great declaration, Behold the Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Jesus we see the true nature of God. What God is really like on display right in front of us the love of God in a person. We see his self-giving love, a love that suffers in order to save, and a love that will not let you go. Do you see him today? And do you see him clearly for who he really is? And in sing, are you believing? For behold, behold the Lamb. Behold your King. Behold our